0: This is the Manga Mavericks Podcast from allcomic.com, episode 164. We are a podcast not only dedicated to talking about manga as a medium, but as an industry. I'm Colton.
1: And I'm Lum Namayasha. And today, we are pleased to do another translator interview as well as spotlight two really great new LGBTQ manga that came out around the same time by this same translator. We are going to be talking about Okura's, I think... My Son is Gay, and Keito Gaku's Boys are on the Riot, with both those series' translator, Leo McDonough. And it was a fantastic conversation we had with Leo, talking about his background in fandom, and becoming a translator, and then his thoughts of working on both of these titles, and how they resonated with him as someone who could definitely relate to the experiences of the characters because of his own lived experiences as a gay trans man. It was just such a great conversation we had about these titles that, you know, we really adored and we really recommend. And yeah, like these are, again, I say at the beginning of the intro for the interview that, Every now and again, we kind of get, like, a moment in which there are, like, two really standard of few works that come out and really make waves and really set a new standard for the type of stories we want to see localized and also open the doors more for more visibility for other titles. I think these two are very similar series because I think we've seen very strong reactions and resonance to them and... I am also just excited for kind of the trend to both represent in terms of the types of stories that are being told over in Japan and being brought over here. So, yeah, I really love our interview with Leo. Really love talking about these titles. I think you're really gonna love listening to them.
0: Hmm. Yeah. I I think we also mentioned it during the discussion, but yeah, I I definitely had flashbacks to when we uh to when we originally covered my Lesbian experience with loneliness and my brother's husband for that first time, like. It's uh, it's interesting that we're kind of reliving that almost in a way. And I, I kind of wonder if we'll go through that again. I don't know. It's just, it, it's a really special feeling. It's like, it's hard to put in the words. But I had a lot of fun, you know, talking and reading both of these. And I can't wait to read more of them, personally speaking. But I don't think there's anything else we really have to talk about at the top of the show. So I think uh, I think we could just head right into our interview.
1: Mm-hmm. Let's... Run the riot, that is this podcast, by headed into our interview with Leah McDonough.
0: No shame in my game. Same.
1: In the past few years, we've been blessed to receive several standout LGBTQ manga released over here, translated in English, and every year we get a really standout title that really resonates with a lot of people and kind of opens the door to see new representation, new types of queer stories being explored and developed. But very rarely do we have a year, a moment where two such works are released in such close proximity to each other. The last such moment I feel we had of this was back in 2017, when both My Brother's Husband and My Lesbian Experience of Loneliness released around the same time. And now, here in 2021, we have two similar really standout, really resonant works coming out at the same time. I Think Our Son is Gay by Okura, and Boys Run the Riot by Keito Gaku. And while both of these series focus on different aspects of the LGBTQ experience, they both are unified in one very common bond in that they were both translated by the same translator who has joined us today to talk about what makes both of these series so special as well as their own translation journey. We are pleased to have on the show Leo McDonough. Leo, thank you for joining us.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
1: Our pleasure. I mean, these are series that we were looking forward to so much and especially in the case of boys from the riot like it was so exciting to know that a series about a trans male lead by a trans male creator would also have an old trans localization staff and be translated by a trans man themselves
2: yeah it's quite a lot of firsts in that one and yeah i'm really happy seeing the response to both of the series
1: Yeah, like, again, I I do feel like these are series that have made a lot of waves that people are really reacting very strongly, very emotionally to them. And I'm really excited to talk about them because I also felt so moved by them (laughs) and related so much to different aspects of each one. But before we talk about the series, we want to talk about you and your career journey in translation for a little bit. And before we even get started on that, pad, on that track, we want to talk about where your fandom of anime, manga, and games began. So where did your fandom begin?
2: Um, I think back when I was a kid, the first introduction I got to fandom was Pokemon. Because um, mm. the first episode of the Pokemon anime, I think, came out on the literal day that I was born. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I grew up watching that and then started playing the games. And yeah, I, but like as a kid, I didn't really understand that it was from Japan. Like I thought, cause it was all mm. localized into English and a lot of it was, um, sort of censored for the British or American audience, like the famous, um, onigiri being turned into donuts and stuff.
3: <laughs> yeah. Um,
2: so I didn't really know that it was from Japan until I saw. Um, I like played a Pokemon game and then I actually looked at the credits and I saw that all the names were Japanese. I was like, oh, wait, this isn't from America. Um, and then I think when I was around 10 or 11, I saw my first anime that wasn't Pokemon and it was Tokyo Mew Mew. Hmm. Um, and I got really into that. And then I got into the manga. I went to my local bookshop and they had it there. And I was like, so psyched about that and then just from then on i was obsessed
1: (laughs) excellent so tokyo Mew Mew is really your like breakthrough title to get into manga yeah
2: especially yeah for sure
1: but pokemon is definitely a very relatable franchise so i think a lot of people over here in europe and north america to like really get into and especially because it's such a great multimedia franchise You know, you have the games really brilliantly translated by Nabokasawara. You have the anime and you have the manga. And interestingly, you had different approaches to translation in each one. Like, obviously, them localizing things to make it palatable to Western audiences. But, you know, different levels of extreme of how they would kind of obfuscate the Original Japaneseness of the original text, which is so interesting. It's also interesting to see how that stuff has kind of evolved over the years too.
2: Yeah, for sure. And it's so cool to see. um My littlest sister has also gotten into Pokemon and is really into anime and stuff like I was when I was her age. So it's really cool to see the sort of staying power that it has still.
1: Yeah, it's really cool to see. Yeah, like it is such a multi generational franchise. But beyond Tokyo Mew Mew, like, where did you go from there in your, like, anime, manga fandom journey?
2: Hmm. Um, at first, I was really into the typical shoujo and shonen manga at the time, like Fruits Basket and Naruto, like, my mm-hmm. my two biggest ones. Um, and then I got really into this manga called Pandora Hearts. Ah. Um, which I really loved. And actually... Um, has a big part in my transition because I was just coming out at the time that I was really into it and there's this character in it called Leo who's this beautiful boy with glasses. And everyone, all of my friends thought that I looked and acted like him and so they called me Leo even though they didn't know that I was a guy inside. Um, (laughs) And so that's how I got my name. And so that manga's really special to me and... Yeah, now that I think about it, like, a lot of my transition and my gender feelings, I could really get out, like, expressed through manga and anime and cosplay and stuff like that. Mm.
1: That's wonderful that, again, this medium was an avenue for you to explore your gender identity and come to that realization of yourself and that you were able to find, like, a character, especially in a series that really meant a lot to you. In realizing like how you identify and who you are, like that's really cool.
0: Mm-hmm. Pandora Hearts is so interesting because like I've seen it around, but I it, it's so interesting because like I actually don't know anything about that franchise at all. <laughs> yeah, it's
2: like it was. It seemed to be quite popular, and there were loads of volumes of it in the stores all the time. But I
0: never met anyone who had read it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's definitely one we should cover on the show at some point.
0: I mean, I'd, I'd be up for it. Like, I've, I've literally never read, like, a volume at all. So that would be pretty interesting. Oh, I'd love that.
1: <laughs> oh, yeah. But so you were definitely getting more and more into anime manga here, it sounds like, and definitely into, like, the culture of uh, anime manga fandom. Like, you mentioned cosplay. Actually, I'm interested, like, did you have a lot of experience with cosplaying as well?
2: Um, I cosplayed a fair few times, and um i mean i kind of grew up on the internet as people my age typically do these days and like i connected with fandoms online and our main way to meet up and bond would be to meet up and cosplay so um i cosplayed a fair bit um and uh, we used to call it uh crossplay because um i would like cosplay as a guy but that was Probably just me like testing the waters of actually like dressing and expressing as a guy. Um mm-hmm. And so I did that a fair bit. Um But then I eventually gave up because it's such a costly hobby.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I have not done really any cosplay myself. But the people who I know do, like, they talk a lot about how much work goes into it. It takes a lot of effort to make those costumes and even more to even, like, wear them and maintain them. So, like, I have so much respect for the crafts of cosplaying and dressmaking. And, again, I I really think it's cool that, again, it is a great avenue of self-expression. And just like you mentioned, that you're able to, like, explore yourself through cosplay. And so that's a really cool thing. I also think that applies to Boys on the Riot and how Rio is able to express himself through the clothes he wears. Like I, I really do think clothes are such an interesting and important way for self expression and affirming your identity. Yeah, for sure. To talk more, I guess just about you know you are you know getting really into anime mangas and. And so when did the point come where you became really interested in, like, learning Japanese? Like, when was the kind of turning point where you're like, you know, I'm a big fan of this stuff, but now I, I really want to read the original stories. I want to learn the language of the place where all this originates.
2: Um, so, yeah, so when I was a really little kid, I actually had a huge interest in language and was quite fascinated by the idea that I could convey these thoughts and feelings and ideas just by making sounds with my mouth or writing scribbles down. And so Mm. I always was sort of inclined to uh, learn more about other places, other cultures, and try to learn their languages as well. So when I, because I got into Japanese media pretty early on in my life with pokemon and manga and things it just seemed natural to me that i would want to start learning japanese because i love languages anyway so but it's kind of funny because i I wanted to i got the desire to become a translator and to learn japanese pretty much simultaneously like i've always wanted to be a translator since i was a kid Hmm. and japanese was just the natural the kind of language i was inclined to translate from because all of my favorite things were in it Excellent.
1: And did you also learn any other languages, or interested in translating other languages as well, in addition to Japanese?
2: Um, I've dipped my toe in a fair few languages, like French and Korean and Mandarin and stuff. But because I don't consume a lot of media in those languages, it I like sort of I'm not that deep into them. Um, whereas mm-hmm. I, I watch and read a lot of Japanese stuff, so it was a m- much easier for me to learn it. But um, I right. I would like to learn some more eventually. But it's just it takes up Japanese takes up so much of my time. Um, the other things take much longer.
1: <laughs> yeah, mastering one language is a challenge in of itself. But it definitely seems like you know your established interest in Japanese media was definitely a big help along that journey. And of course, you would have study abroad experience too at Waseda later as well, which I'm sure helped.
2: Yeah, for sure. That really helped. And um doing a degree really helped because um self-study can be really hard, but when you've got someone guiding you through it and you're paying that much money to learn it, then there's a lot more incentive to become fluent in it.
1: Mm-hmm. But I mean, going into then your time at university, like, you know, of course, you were interested in being a translator and learning the Japanese language, but like like in terms of like what you specialized in university and like what you were researching in regards to language and applying that into Japanese culture and interpreting Japanese culture like were there anything any interesting findings or anything that really like motivated you, okay, this is what I want to major in this is what I want to focus on researching and learning in university.
2: Um, I think I was really interested in how LGBTQ plus themes come up in Japanese work um, and the differences between the LGBTQ plus community in Japan compared to the UK and the US. Um, And so I really honed in on that when I was doing my degree. And luckily at Waseda and at Leeds, where I studied, there were classes to do with that. There was like Gender and Sexuality in Japanese Literature classes and uh, Japanese Gender Studies classes. And then, of course, I wrote my thesis on translating LGBTQ themes and gender from Japanese into English. So I'm really lucky that the places that I went to just happened to have a lot of classes on those themes. But then we also learned a lot of different things like literature and history and culture. And I just found all of it really fascinating.
1: That's really cool. So what were some of the observations that you learned in regards to the LGBTQ community in Japan and the differences between the LGBTQ community there and over here in the States? Like, I know some, like, differences, but, like, I am curious to know about your findings and then, like, you know, how you may have been able to apply that to your work later.
2: Yeah, um... It's hard to summarize and also I really don't want to generalize because like Mm -hmm. the LGBTQ plus community in the US and in Japan are so diverse and there's a lot of differing opinions and experiences so I don't want to generalize that but I think the main thing that you can kind of hone in on is like the sort of legal rights for people in both countries like for example in Japan there still isn't gay marriage, and um it's also a lot harder to transition, things like that, compared to the US and the UK. Although the, the UK isn't doing great in that regard right now, but that was the main difference I saw. But it was also interesting to see the different history of gender and sexuality in Japan compared to the UK or the US, like different standards of um gender roles and things like that like i felt i felt like i fit in a lot more in japanese masculinity because um it's not like there's less stigma against guys who like to dress pretty basically Hmm. um and yeah I i felt like i fit in more with the sense of japanese masculinity compared to the uk or the us so that was an interesting discovery to see and then I was able to apply that to my work when I was translating because I sort of had that context when translating, and it meant that when I'm translating, I'm conscious of the original context, I'm not trying to, I I didn't want to erase it while I was translating because there's sort of, a, uh, especially in the past few decades, there's been a tendency for Like English translations of Japanese media to sort of censor like LGBTQ plus characters. Mm. And so I'm happy at the, I'm at the point now where when I was doing, I think our son is gay and boys run the riot, I like, I didn't have to censor anything. I could be, Mm -hmm. I could faithfully convey, um, the LGBTQ plus representation, um, but also make sure that, um, it suited like a US audience that like US, like American readers were going to be able to understand it um because there's a lot of Japanese phrases around gender and sexuality that don't really, don't directly translate. Mm. So I had to do a lot of translation notes and things like that. But it, it was helpful to have learned all about that in university and then put that into my work when I was translating.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Like, it definitely sounds that your, you know, experiences in Japan definitely gave you a great understanding and how to approach, like, boys Run the Ride in particular. And you're mentioning, like, some of the translation notes that you included in the book and also some of the interesting choices, like, where you had to kind of explain, like, a term that doesn't quite translate or or needs explanation like i think uh a notable one was a translation note for in the story we see rio you know look up a book that is kind of giving a primer an explanation of what it means to be a lgbtq and like they read that you know like, their dysphoria is, like, kind of categorized under gender identity disorder, which in the U.S. is a term that has been long retired. I mean, retired since 2013, so it's still recent, but still not a term we would use in favor of, you know, gender dysphoria. So that was an interesting translation on that. In Japan, they still kind of categorize it under that term. And also, of course, like, I thought... The clever workarounds you had for moments where characters were referring to each other with gender specific honorifics and how you were able to kind of get across the same intent in the translation was really well done. Like, of course, like the first moment where, you know, their Rose classmates are talking about like, you know, this program, they watch it and all the actors they like and like, one of Ryo's uh, classmates is saying he likes this girl and Ryo says oh I'm that kind of dude too and then all the classmates stare at him and uh, like when I originally read that scene I was like I didn't even think of like oh in the original text like he probably referred to himself using ore or a male pronoun I was like just thinking oh like they're staring at him because he is admitting that he likes a girl and that's catching them off. But it works in both contexts. And you know, the follow-up there of like him clarifying, oh, if I were to like a girl like me, uh that's who I'd be interested in. So I thought that was a great way to rewrite that. And then of course later in the book, uh when Sakasa is introduced, or Sabasa and uh like Kashi Bawara is, like, telling him, hey, Sabasa, look at this, because dude. And they are like, hey, don't call me dude. I've asked you not to do that. And so that was also a, a good workaround of, like, uh Kajua Bar originally calling him, like, Nichon and stuff like that. And, like, still getting across, like, referred to him, like, with a male honorific and stuff that isn't how Sabasa wants to be addressed. So, yeah, I, I just thought those were really, really, great uh rewrites that still go out across the same mm, tempo in a very really yeah. natural way
2: yeah i'm really glad i got to do translation notes because um like i obviously i want it to read naturally in the english in the actual text but it's cool to have translation notes at the end for the people who really want to know what it said in the original like the complete context so i'm glad i got to do that and i'm, mm-hmm. I'm glad that you liked my workarounds because that took a lot of time <laughs>
1: Yeah, I mean, I know it's so difficult to kind of figure out a way to work around, like, especially gendered honorifics. Like, I remember mm-hmm. there was the scene in Your Name, which you know, yeah. uh, as a botting story, there's this scene where like the female raises in the in the male body, and then she's talking with his friends, and she uses feminine pronouns, and then she has to like work her way to masculine pronouns, and and the English and the dub, like they had. To just make that, like, she's using, like, uh, formal speak and then works her way to informal speak. So Mm -hmm. it can be very tricky to get across the same intent in localization. So I I find that very interesting. But, I mean, I guess that also brings me to, like, some of, you know, kind of your fan translation, some of your early translation projects, which I was curious about. Actually, before we even go there, uh there's something I noticed notes that I want to ask you about, like, or just bring up because I thought that was cool. Like, you had mentioned on uh, Twitter a while ago that, like, when you were in high school and you had attended, like, a girls' school and you had to, like, go and learn uh Japanese from the tutor at the boys' school. So I just thought that was, like, really cool that you were such a, like, self-starter that you, <laughs> like, put in the extra mile, the extra effort to learn Japanese at such a young age.
2: Yeah, thank you. And when you put it that way, it sounds kind of symbolic, like I I was going to the boys' school to learn Japanese, um, which Mm -hmm. which is obviously, there's like two of my dreams in one.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, they really should have offered that same at all schools, regardless of whether it's boys' school or girls' school, so that's a bit of an unfair thing. But again, like you persevering like through those barriers is, again, really symbolic and really cool. (laughs) Thank you. But... Yeah, I mean, on the subject of like your early fan translation projects, like, I know for your thesis, you did a fan translation of uh, Our Dreams at Dusk for Study. But like, what were some of your other, you know, early translation projects? And what are some of those like skills? What are some things that you learned from doing those projects that, you know, encourage your growth as a translator?
2: Yeah, so I think the first Manga I ever translated, like as a fan privately, was, um, My Genderless Boyfriend by Taneko. Just cause I was really interested in that theme and I got to show it to a mentor and got some really good advice back. Um, mainly just about trying to write natural English dialogue. Cause in the beginning I was way too scared to do that. I would just translate things really directly and it just didn't, it sounded quite stilted and not how normal people talk. So. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of just trying to build up the confidence to reword things slightly just so it sounds like how a normal person would talk and make it entertaining for the reader to read. And then I, I actually mostly for my fan translations translated novels and short mm-hmm. stories and things um, just from various writers and for contests and things like that. And that helped me just to... I could just be completely free with my long sentences and things like that. And that helped me with my creative translation.
1: Excellent. And definitely having experiences translating different types mean, that probably definitely like broaden your ability to handle different types of translation too.
2: Yeah, for sure.
1: It's so cool. Like you like enter like multiple different like contests, you know, you really to train and hone your craft.
2: Yeah, for sure. And that's a good, um I recommend that to any aspiring translators, just because um it really incentivizes you to finish the whole thing. And there's usually really interesting texts that are purposefully difficult. So you really have to challenge yourself to finish.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: But like, in addition to, you know, fiction works, like novels, a manga, you've also like done translation work for like, hotel uh, informationals and uh, all sorts of other things like what like how
2: uh
1: with those like broad experiences like what were you able to take away from doing all these different types of projects
2: um i think i was able to obviously it's good to have experience in a lot of different things but also helped me hone in on what i enjoyed most doing and what i was best at doing and. Yeah, I did a lot of interesting things. Most of it I can't talk about because of NDAs, mm-hmm. but I especially loved translating indie games and I think that experience really helped me to sort of get my start in freelance translation because it was only after I'd done those that I got um, manga translation jobs and stuff.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, definitely like working on different things, you know, just broadens your horizons and your like ability to uh, your knowledge base of like that you can apply to your work later like I think we interviewed Jocelyn Allen last year and she mentioned that you know she uh some on for early translation jobs for like in the automobile industry yeah and so she's learned a lot of really super technical things about cars so like if she ever works on a racing manga like she can apply that knowledge <laughs> like into her work so
2: yeah I remember that like, most of my early work was for hotels and for restaurants, so any sort of hotel or restaurant-related manga or game, I'd be okay at that. <laughs> <laughs> nice.
1: But to to go back to the subject of, you know, your translation and how I've been translate your uh, studies of gender and the LGBTQ community in Japan, like, I was really interested in... Your thesis, you know, being about exploring the nuances of translating gender for Japanese to English in conjunction with, with Our Dreams of Dusk as a case study. And, yeah, I mean, I guess we touched upon this a little bit. But, I mean, like, what did you learn from doing this project in particular? Like, going through Our, Our Dreams of Dusk and translated it yourself? And then, what were your observations of how gender identity and in, in case were expressed in Japanese sound difficult they can, can translate? And then, like, what kind of takeaways did you take from this project and then apply to your future projects? I th- You wrote a really good kind of summary, like a part of the thesis you released on your blog recently, which I found very fascinating, but I was just consider- interested in hearing more of your thoughts on it.
2: Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, I mean, I could basically summarize what I was saying in the article, but um, so in Japanese you can get away with never referring to gender or barely at all. Like, no, you don't have to use pronouns for people if you don't want, and you can use san on the end of names, which is gender neutral. So a lot of the time um, when you're translating, you you might have to guess a character's gender, um, which can be quite difficult and also can cause quite a few arguments online about what a character's gender is or if they're trans mm. or something. Um, which is quite frustrating for people who want some presentation, but it's also quite freeing um, in how ambiguous it is. And I think that's something that drew uh, me to Japanese when I was growing up um, as a queer person. But yeah, there's also ways in Japanese that you can signify gender, like um, using pronouns for yourself, like ore or atashi, um, and then different styles of speaking that are associated with uh, femininity and masculinity and things like that. um, you sort of touched on it earlier, saying about um, when Ryo in Boys Run the Riot uses ore and then switches to a different pronoun. Um, and everyone's like, why did you say ore? <laughs> mm-hmm. Just things like that. And then when I was translating Our Dreams at Dusk, I was mainly just trying to explore that and, like, sort of just prove, like, I just wanted to prove how difficult it is to translate because it just doesn't. Um, translate directly from Japanese to English because they're different languages with different, uh, ways to express gender. And I just wanted to show that. But one thing from writing the thesis that I really realized was just how much of an impact, um, like when you're translating for publication, how much that impacts it because obviously you have a specific purpose for the text. Um, and then it's going to a particular audience that is going to have expectations and certain Certain politics and views of gender and things, and you have to take that into account when you 're translating. You have to think what is the audience going to understand, what do I have to explain, what can I um, simplify, or what should I elaborate on, and things like that and that can have a lot of impact on how you translate, and um, that isn't something that I had thought about much before writing it.
1: for sure, like the viewpoint of the translator as well as the expectations of the audience do play an important part in like how those kind of ambiguous terms or those difficult to communicate terms definitely have to be translated to kind of you know fit into like what is the intent of the story and what is the audience meant to understand of the characters in the story
2: yeah and it's doing that while still making it enjoyable and making it a natural read like it would be for the original Japanese audience too.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, it takes a lot of thought and creativity, and it's really challenging, especially when you're dealing with material that's really sensitive and really important to a lot of people.
0: Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's like they say, translations of art, not a science.
1: <laughs> Absolutely.
0: Yeah. I mean, I
2: got a Bachelor in Arts, so... <laughs> <laughs> But
1: I think now we are getting into our topics of I think her son is gay and boys from the riot pretty soon here. But I guess my last question, we did touch on this a little bit, but, you know, as your lived experiences as a gay trans man, you know, and these are two series specifically about a closeted gay boy and a closeted trans boy, like, have those lived experiences you know, informed, like, how you approach these series and, like, uh, making translation choices that someone without those experiences may not have picked up upon?
2: Mm, I think, firstly, it just helped me to really empathize with the characters, because Mm -hmm. I had been through what they've been through. So I could think back on the kinds of things that I thought um, when I was a teenager and I was closeted and sort of parallel that alongside what they were saying in the mangas and that really helped with my translation and i think being trans and being gay i could like try and make choices translation choices that are inclusive and um, positive representations of the characters but still like trying to acknowledge and replicate like the messiness and the complicated journey of that Mm-hmm. And I think also being like sensitive to the issues that the LGBTQ plus community is going through right now, um, helped like my choice, particularly me and TJ Ferentini, who's my editor, who is amazing. <laughs> um, we were talking a yeah. lot about how to translate the gender identity disorder thing because, um, obviously in the US, you don't call it a dis- disorder anymore, but in Japan, they do. And so it was like, Um, we were able to come up with a way to, like, acknowledge that reality in Japan while still, like, making it, like, a good representation of transness and of dysphoria for the US audience as well. Just things like that, I think. Um, having my background as a trans queer person helped make those choices and try and make it the best possible translation it could be for our LGBT plus audience.
1: I definitely think it comes across in the translation, that sense of empathy and that thoughtfulness. And yeah, I mean, it definitely, the words this character is used to describe themselves, express themselves, like they felt so genuine. Like there are a lot of lines in these series that I definitely felt like this is something, this puts into words something that I know I have taught, I know a lot of people in my life have thought who are queer. And so, yeah, I just, I thought it was extremely well done. And yeah, I, I think it's so important, like, you know, because these can also be kind of difficult to navigate territory. Like it's not always, like there is messy stuff. Like I know what uh, our dreams were dusk when we talked about that, that when I was reading that, like there are, there were slurs like that had to be used there because that had to get across, like, mm-hmm. a very, you know, virulent, you know, messy emotion. And it was difficult to see those on the page, but I could understand, like, why they were there and the importance of that. And obviously, you know, these books don't go that far into the territory, but there's still some, you know, very gun-punchy moments, uh, especially in Boys from the Riot where in moments for Ryo is being like misgendered and stuff, Like, I can definitely feel the pain of that in both the art and both the words being described. So again, I think it was just so well done on all levels. And yeah, I just want to, again, really thank you for the talk you put into these translations.
2: Thank you. And of course, I want to acknowledge how amazing the original work is by Keto mm-hmm. and Okurabe it's an amazing series I, I'm big fans of that so I'm really glad that I could be a part of their series
1: absolutely and I also want to shout out T.J. Ferentini because like, I really appreciated their afterward I appreciated the interview mm. they did on the YouTube channel for Genja, like discussing like the work they put in working with Itogaku to bring the series over here and make the original covers and assembling like an old translocation team like I, this is such a special, uh, rare book. It's so great to just have that sense of authenticity and just it being treated like, you know, this is an important book mm-hmm. that is given special treatment like this. I, I just was really glad to see that for the series.
2: Yeah, I was really glad to see that too.
1: But I guess to go into now, the first of the two series we're going to talk about today, Okura's I Think Our Son Is Gay and also touch upon, you know, bringing in like personal experiences into work. Like you mentioned uh, on Twitter a little while ago that I think your son gay meant a lot to you because your mother has been an invaluable source of support to you yourself. And, and I was just wondering what parts of the book like really stuck out to you and resonated with you the most.
2: Mm, I think, yeah, it really resonated with me because my mom is super supportive and, um, but she didn't pry. Um, she like tried to let me go at my own pace and um, didn't force me out of the closet or anything and so but I also really related to Hidoki, Hiroki um just sort of being really embarrassed <laughs> and being afraid to say, even if like my mum would have been really supportive and accepting, it is really hard to do that, and feels embarrassing to talk about, so it really just resonated with me, and it it was really nice to see the mum's perspective and you know, it made me reflect on what my mom might have been thinking during that time that I was in the closet and just really helped me to reflect back on that part of my life a, a bit more positively. So it's it's a really important series to me.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I mean, I mentioned this um, on Twitter and in my review, but like this, a think our Son is Gay, it did get me tearing up when I was reading it. And even uh, <laughs> when I reread it, uh, j- just yesterday to refresh myself for this podcast I teared up again like mm-hmm. uh, I mean I'm I didn't I, I don't uh, I like I think it's just so amazing to see a parent uh, like Tomoko who is just so supportive of her son like he doesn't interfere with her son's life like she doesn't try to pry or doesn't try to like control his life and force him to make certain decisions but she's like just being his ally and watching out for him and like thinking about his happiness and just rooting for him Mm -hmm. like she's really respectful of him and like what he's comfortable with and you know she wants to have like more heart starts with her son and would like the days to come when he can be open with her about being gay and just talking to her about it but until that happens like she's just gonna let him figure it out for himself like she knows that there's a lot going on in his life that she doesn't know about and she can only speculate about and she also knows that you know he has been thinking about a lot of stuff a lot on his own mm-hmm. and like you know that like one of the moments that just hit me really was when you know his dad places so much pressure on him to like conform to like this idea of cis heteronormative masculinity and like one of the thing comments that he kind of puts out there like flippantly and doesn't think much out of it but but puts pressure on Hiroki is like this expectation that Hiroki will one day you know become a father and have kids and like Hiroki is kind of lamenting to his mom that he doesn't think he can live up to his dad's expectations and you know he goes into all these different like excuses sees his why trying to you know obscure the fact that the reason why is that he thinks you know as like a gay man he won't be able to maybe have kids adopted so it might be a challenging future and it's like he's giving other reasons why it's remote because giving him like a pensive look and then just eventually just just hugs him and thinks to herself that you know i wish like i could just tell you to not think about these things but i know that'd be irresponsible because i know you are thinking about these things and it's important to think about these things but like i just want you to know that like i'm i'm there for you and like will show you that you have love in your life and someone to support you and that that just really hit home to me like she doesn't say any of this in words but just the gesture of hugging him and like trying to cheer him up in that way like that just that just really hit me and there are a lot of moments of just great allyship in the book where tomoko and yuri will stand up for hiroki when he's like being put into a corner or feeling pressured by his dad, and it's just all these moments really hit me when it's just like just tomoko or his brother like validating that hiroki is you know normal the way he is like he should feel comfortable being who he is and not having to feel pressure to live up to this idea of masculinity or normativity that their dad is kind of putting pressure on him and like, not like his, Their dad is not like being cruel about it, but he is being insensitive. He's not super aware of like the pressure he's putting on his kid, but that just feels so relatable to me. And that just, that just really hit me just so hard because, you know, being on the receiving end of that kind of talk from people and they're just hitting like hitting you that, you know, like people are kind of assuming like these kind of things of this cis heteronormative assumptions of like what mm. your life is going to be or what, what is expected of you to be and then you just like seeing these moments where someone speaks up saying hey no hiroki mm. is fine he, hiroki is great the way he is and he doesn't have to be this way that you're saying that it's more normal for him to be so like I, I just, those moments just really hit home for me a lot, and yeah, I mean, I, I just think it's nice to see a story because, then oftentimes in a lot of LGBTQ uh, manga that get localized over here, at least a lot of the ones I've read, like parents are either a very distant or either a very antagonistic <clears throat> or kind of hostile force in the story. Like it's usually a big thing that they, for a character, come out to them, or it's like they're not the most supportive at first, and it's a big source of stress, but it's just nice and comforting to have a story, you know, from a parent's perspective, where she's just unabashedly doting and loving mm-hmm. of her queer son, and it's, that's just, again, it's, it just really hits me a lot in the feels.
2: Yeah, it hit me a lot too. I definitely teared up a lot while I was translating it. <laughs> um, I think it's just such a great example to allies of how to be an ally, and then also... Mm. A great read for LGBTQ plus people. Um, just it's sort of cathartic just to read the things that um, his mom and his brother say to him and reassure him.
0: Yeah, so it's it's great for everyone, I think.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Absolutely.
0: Yeah, I I thought this was really great too. I don't I don't know if they're listening, but I I do have to thank uh, our good friend Maxie for uh, kind of introducing me to the series because I I saw them. Uh I think that was the first time I like heard of it. I saw I just saw them tweet about it and it just looked really cute and uh in my head I'm I'm just gonna I'm gonna say Maxi was probably the cause of this being licensed. I don't know. It's just probably not true, but I'd like to think that. It just feels like whatever they happen to be tweeting about or whatever usually ends up getting some, sometimes ends up getting picked up within like a year or two of them <laughs> tweeting it out, so I yeah. don't know, you never know. But no, but this was I mean I don't know if I have, like, a lot to add on, but I really enjoyed reading it. It was very cute. It was very wholesome. You know, the the, the kind of thing that I think a lot of people in the community, like, could really use right now. Uh, it's, it's just such a comforting, nice, sweet read. I would maybe put it in the category of something like uh, My Love Story, possibly. Uh, something that's just a really nice, cute read that's just always so sweet. Mm. But, uh, I mean, this compared to that, you know, it's not totally the same thing, but uh, I would say this is, Mm -hmm. you know, this series so far is like just so it's
1: just fluffy and charming because it is super adorable to just watch hiroki you know just be such a bad liar about like his crushes and Mm -hmm. his interests in boys like the chapter where he and tomoko bond over watching like the boys koshian games and he (laughs) slowly is kind of admitting like what kind of man he's into is just so adorable (laughs) like he's he's so lovable like just the fact that you know there's a point where he's texting with Daigo his crush and best friend and he's like Daigo mentions that one of his cute points is that he can't tell a lie and that that is such a, a cute adorable thing about him is that he is just so honest and earnest and sincere and like it, it does make you want to root for him like tomoko for him to find like happiness in his life and yeah it's just it is so cute and charming to just see the interactions between tomoko and hiroki and then you just her cheering him on and you know i i appreciate that this is like a flight In fluffy comedy, but it also does, again, like, touch upon, like, kind of very real situations that, you know, a lot of queer kids can find themselves in, like discussed before, but also I really think that it does a very interesting exploration of kind of how, like, these cis heteronormative ideals and assumptions are like learned behaviors mm-hmm. that are like consistently reinforced to you as you grow up like i think one of the brilliant things about this volume is that we have the storyline in the present where you know we're seeing kind of tomoko learn more about Hiroki in the present and his pressure on daigo and like more about his interest in boys and stuff like that but then we're just having these flashback chapters are kind of tracking kind of some of the early implication signs that Hiroki might have an interest in boys. And like we see that early on, like he expressed affection to other boys in his class through smooches, which he learned from his dad because his dad was very affectionate to him. And so he just thought it was normal to give smooches to People he liked. But then, like, when his dad finds out that he was smooching like a boy in his class, he was like, whoa, you can't just do that with anyone. And so you have that first implication that, oh, well, there's something wrong with just, you know, showing affection that way to, you know, just people in my class. And then later on, like when he's little older. Like, his dad is asking him, hey, what is there anyone you like in your class? And Hiroki mentions a boy he really likes. And then, like, his dad waves it I was saying, oh, I didn't mean love like that. And that informs to Hiroki that, oh, there's something wrong with liking or loving a boy that way. Like, you're not supposed to love a boy that way. And then, later still, when he's in, like, fifth grade and he buys a present for the boy he really likes, and he gets rejected, that is a moment where he gets reinforced that oh, it can be, you know, kind of dangerous to show that you're interested and you really care about someone of the same sex. Like, you can get rejected like that, and we get the implication that because he did that, he lost a friendship, and you can understand why maybe he's keeping, like, his crushes in his interest a secret to himself like and secret to other people now because like he might be aware that oh like if I am open about this I might risk rejection again and yeah I just like tracking how the series kind of explores and tracks that like our sense of normalcy, our sense of what is considered acceptable is like reinforced by these style, but they aren't like inherent and Hiroki has to learn that these things are considered unusual and that he has to keep mum about them because people won't understand or be as readily accepting of him. And it's it's a very real thing and I I really appreciate the series like exploring in that way and Again, like having Tomoko, like at the end of the book, I love how the last chapter of the book is like kind of the conclusion of these like two mar- narratives, you of know, trying at the, you know, present and in the past, where we see the moment where Tomoko kind of really came to understand that her son might be gay, but because he another like very teenage thing, he was looking up porn on <laughs> his mom's computer. And then he admits that, like accidentally that, oh, he, he has an interest in a boy having a boyfriend and like she calls her husband and she's like saying starting off with the impression that something's wrong but as she continues to talk with her husband she slowly realizes that oh like nothing is wrong with her okay he's the same person as he always been he's still my son he's a precious member of my family and there is nothing wrong with him like he is who he is and I'm just going to support him watch out for him and that's just such a great message great conclusion to the book uh again I think it's such a very thoughtful story in addition to being such a charming and feel-good read story because it does address like again what constitutes our sense of normalcy and like what the kind of a struggle to express being queer when you're pitted against the assumption that being gay is somehow utter and like his dad explicitly says, Oh, two men kissing is kinda of gross, huh? And he says that in a joking way, and that's kind of the stuff, those kind of microaggressions, you kinda of have to deal with when you're queer and you have to kind of navigate this assumption of this head or narrativity. So like, I really appreciate that. I think it's so thoughtful in its exploration of that.
0: Oh yeah, for sure. I just really like reading a comic about, uh, I mean, just in general about uh, a mom and a son just kind of bonding together. I just think mm-hmm. that on its own is also really cute.
1: Yeah. That's also a rarity to just have a strong bond between a mother and son like that. Like you don't see that explored just You know, wholesomely. Like, they have a great relationship. And in general, this family has a pretty good relationship. Like, even though the dad has kind of, like, is very insensitive and uh, sees microaggressions often, it is clear that he does care about his kids and he teaches them, like, household chores and valuable life skills and plays games with them so it's like a loving household and that's just also that feels like a rarity to see in manga and it's also mm-hmm. just nice and heartwarming to see like just a functional loving household like
0: this i'm mm-hmm. sorry if we're taking over too much leo was there anything else you wanted to say about i think our son is in particular no i think you
2: made a lot of good points there i agree it's really amazing how the series sort of it points out these microaggressions and really sad points sometimes but then it still overall manages to be a really good like feel good charming sort of healing series and i think it's amazing that they were able to balance that
1: absolutely and yeah i guess moving on from i think son gay to boys from the riot that is kind of a very different type of series mm-hmm. and like being like, I think there's some is gay is kind of this wholesome, warm hug a boys are on the riot is like a big statement of like, mm-hmm. yo, like we are going to, we are going to be unafraid of being ourselves. And like, you know, he, this is like a, a rally cry, like a riot. Like, yeah, let's, let's make some noise here. And yeah, I really appreciate it. <laughs> I really appreciate its boldness in that way. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I mean, Again, like, we touched upon this, but, you know, it is so special and it feels rarer than it should be to have, like, a manga about a trans male protagonist written by a trans man, all trans localization team. And I guess I just wanted to ask you before we get into the series proper, like, you know, what was it like collaborating with your team on this project? And what are your thoughts on the series as, like, this important new benchmark for trans representation and manga both on page and behind the scenes?
2: It, yeah, it was amazing to work with a trans team on this because everyone was sort of on the same page about, um, how to translate it, how, like, the kind of things you needed to include. Like, everyone was really on the ball. Like, TJ put in a note at the end about, um, how to bind safely, just stuff like that it was really, um, conscious of good trans representation and, yeah, it was a, it's a really amazing series because there's not a lot of representation of trans boys and trans men, like in general, like in the world. <laughs> um, like mm-hmm. not just in manga, but in anything really. Um, especially not by a trans man. Um, so it's really special in that way. And I think it's just, it's really cool to have a trans boy main char- character who is sort of, I mean, he has a certain level of autonomy and you get to see his, struggles, his feelings, um, that he also has a certain sense of power and that he's rioting, you know, he's making a statement and, um, yeah, it's just really amazing. Like I can't think of other than, um, in our dreams at dusk, I can't think of much good, um, trans reps, like trans boy representation in manga or anime or games, and I can't think of much good trans man representation even in the US in movies and books and things like that. Um, not in the mainstream anyway. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Trans men are woefully underrepresented in mainstream, super popular and disseminated media, it seems. Like, clearly there are stories out there, but like, they're not as visible or as accessible or promoted as they should be. Besides this series, the only other manga I know of with a trans male lead is Yoreto, which unfortunately mm-hmm. has not been localized yet. But that's kind of like a horror type, horror mystery type story featuring a trans male lead. Uh-huh. So, I mean, I'd love to see that series get localized and translated because I mean we've we've talked about it. when We had uh, Casey on the show before. Mm-hmm. That's such a great series. So, yeah, I'd love to see that. But and yeah, I mean besides Ryo here, and then Utsumi in Our Dreams at Dusk, Mm -hmm. there isn't a whole lot of examples. Like The most popular trans manga, or at least the most well-known trans manga that was ever localized, like Wandering Sun, Mm -hmm. it was an unfortunate thing that the character that was seen to represent a trans male character ultimately ended up not turning out to be Mm -hmm. and so there wasn't any representation in that series for trans men so Mm -hmm. i mean it's just great to have boys from the riot as like hey this is a manga about a trans man for written by a trans man who knows the experience as well and can just replicate that so authentically and of course translated authentically by you which is again just so meaningful and valuable
2: (laughs) thank you yeah i think it's Yeah, it's really important to have have that in English because, I mean, there's not a lot of trans, like, education on trans boys in Japan or in the US or UK and other English-speaking countries, so it's really important for both of them. And then it's also really important that it's coming out in English because I think it sort of shows, like, the universality of the trans experience. Like, obviously, it's a bit different from place to place and culture to culture and everything like that, but just to see like elsewhere in the world um there's other trans people it sort of it sort of makes you feel more connected to the global trans community at least it did when i was reading it so i think that's really important
3: mhm mhm
1: i mean especially with the discussions of rio's gender dysphoria like i mean speaking it from the opposite end of that dysphoria like i Like, I definitely feel that the way he put it into words, like, how making certain clothes makes him feel, like, really, really cut like a knife, Mm -hmm. and yeah, I mean, again, I think what's a great aspect about this series is that it does, it takes, like, this kind of uh, type of fiction of, like, hey, this is a story about outcasts and outsiders to kind of this system or this sense of normalcy in society who are like really going to make a name for themselves and like because there isn't a space for them to belong in these quote-unquote normal settings they have found community they have found family in each other and they are going to basically show everyone that they can thrive and prosper as who they are like unapologetically Mm -hmm. And that's always such a compelling type of story to read. And especially it fits like a glove with the trans experience of like saying, hey, you know, there is often times where it feels like there isn't a place we can belong into. But then, you know, we have come together as a community and we've created our own space. And we are like kind to uh, lift each other up. We're going to help each other. And then we're going to try them. And I just like seeing that a lot. So mm-hmm. in this series, I really like seeing, like, we have basically people who, you know, are afraid of standing up, really. We have Ryo, who, for uh, very clear reasons, you know, wants to keep quiet about the fact that he's trans and wants to not... Put himself out there and get noticed because he's afraid of the consequences of that because of his kind of traumatic experiences in middle school of standing out too much and then just getting rejected and bullied by uh classmates and left by his friends. And then we have Itsuka who like kind of just goes with the flow of what all these popular kids are doing, even though he has his own like interests in photography and he wants to make a name of himself in that and like follow his dreams but it's like getting put down about not really taking seriously in that way and like both of these characters like they have this conflict of like not wanting to stand out just wanting to kind of coast along and fit in and not really draw the eye or draw like the judgment of other people is what they're so afraid of. But then we have in Jin, like, someone who's kind of unapologetically himself, unapologetically, like, loud and proud of, like, what he wants to do and announcing it to the whole world. Literally, in this case, he announces in front of the stadium that he has this dream of starting a brand. And I think it's just a good message of not just being afraid to be yourself and, like, follow your dreams and pursue what you're passionate about.
0: I like that uh Itsuka in particular is one of those people that was at the uh, assembly and was kind of inspired by Jin, you know, after his speech. I thought that was a nice touch. I also really mm-hmm. like that moment where uh Chihiro, little little rich boy fuck or whatever, yeah. <laughs> you know, I like how he like kind of calls out the Jin and tries to give him shit and Jin's literally just like who are like, you? Who are you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's the kind of energy I want to exude. Like, I, I strive to be that.
1: <laughs> yeah, like, no conformity or reverence to the status quo. Like, that's what makes great Jin such a great character, like, as an outsider character. And, like, as someone who can inspire both Ryo and Itsuka in that way to, like, not be afraid to step out of this comfort zone to just put themselves out there and to express themselves. So I again I think again clothing as well as Rio's hobby of graffiti are great representations of that form of self expression of just communicating your message communicating yourself to the world and I think uh, it's a great marriage of these two ideas of like both graphic design and clothing mm-hmm. and how that relates to both generating and just a general idea of self expression. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, and I, again, like, I I really like the relationship between the characters, and again, I really like Ryo's journey, and how he grows, like, I like that by the point we meet Itzka, Ryo has kind of learned that from Jin, he's become more confident just, like, putting himself out there, and he is also one to tell Itzka like, hey, you know, if you are afraid of standing out and being a normal, like, that's on you, don't take it out on us, after Iska has lashed it out on us, like, it's, you are the one who is, like, running away and being willed in that way, but, yeah, like, I, I like that sense of growth mm-hmm. from the characters that we see in this volume, and it is, there's so many great cathartic moments, like, I, I do love, like, after seeing Jin make his speech at the assembly, and Ryo has this moment where he almost kind of bad mounts Jin, like, in front of his friends. It's, like, saying, oh, cut to distance himself from him. But then by seeing Chika, like, kind of step up and say, hey, no, I thought that it was kind of cool. It takes guts to do that. It's not everyone can do what he just did. Like, that makes Ryo interrogate. Hey, you know, I said I would be partners with this guy. But, like, I'm still running away. I'm not really willing to meet him. On his level and be there with him, and then later when Jin is talking to him and is saying like, "Hey, you know, I put myself out there. I'll. I know you're afraid of being the nail gets hammered in, so I'll put my head on the chopping block for you." And then Rio, like this, decides, "No, you know, you don't have to do that. We're going to be in this together." It makes the great statement of just like, you know, graffitiing. This is our brand, Rio and Jin, on the school wall, like an unavoidable, like unmistakable statement of, like, intent of, like, hey, no, we are in this together equally as partners. Like, it's just really cool, awesome moments of
0: solidarity like that, that I really appreciate. No, that was, that was pretty cool. I guess one thing that I wasn't entirely sure of that I think got better throughout the volume was uh, d- during that first chapter, kind of when they, like, confront each other, and Rio is just kind of honest about how he's feeling, you know, basically uh, spills his guts to to Jin about like kind of what he's going through and Jin being like well hey you should have told me like and or whatever and i i wasn't sure how to feel about that scene at first because at first i felt like like yeah i i get where Jin's coming from but i wasn't so sure if Jin was i wasn't necessarily sure if he was being kind of insensitive towards how rio was feeling but i think that like uh, like as i read on through the volume i think um I think Jin kind of throughout throughout the first volume in particular kind of learns how to be an ally to Rio, so
1: yeah, yeah. he's self aware he recognizes that he can't understand completely what Rio is feeling mm-hmm. and like what fears keep rio from really expressing himself but like he wants to understand and he wants to be a good ally which is why like he you know puts all the attention on him at the assembly to draw attention away from rio and say like hey i'll be the face of this and i'll be the guy who draws everyone's attention so you don't have to stand out and you don't have to worry about that so like he is trying to be a good friend to rio and he does recognize. I mean, that's something that I appreciate. The series does discuss that there is a recognition that Jin has privilege of being a cis male; that he doesn't have to worry as much about the consequences of people judging him and of people scrutinizing him. Whereas Rio is not in that situation. Like we saw, there are consequences for him for standing out too much and for not conforming and drawing to attention for the to the fact that he's not conforming. So he has very real fears of risking social isolation and alienation if he draws too much attention to himself. To say nothing of like more dangerous consequences he could put himself at risk of. Yeah. But like ultimately, I think Jin does show through his actions that gets through to Rio that, you know, it's more freeing and more validating. It's more what Ryo wants to just be himself and for people to see him as himself and to, just live as himself and not just kind of feel like he's living in shame or feel like he has to hide himself from the world. Like I think such a great moment uh, of a conversation that happens is when Ryo is talking to Jin about what clothes mean to him and Ryo says that clothes have always meant an escape, a way for him to hide who he is. Whereas Jin says, you know, I see it in a completely opposite way. I see clothes as a way for me to be myself, to express who I am. And I think that idea, that sense of, like, the most important thing is to be true to yourself and what you want to express yourself is explored very well through this series and, stu- uh, and this first volume. And we see really good examples of that. I also want to draw attention to that scene because of the conclusion of the moment, you know, where Rio and Jin have kind of re-forged their pact to start a brand together. Like, the graffiti that Rio has drawn is just such brilliant, such awesome symbolism of like this man literally ripping himself out from the skin of a woman's body and this especially with this idea of the zipper that he is ripped open from the inside because obviously with the context of a zipper like someone has to have locked you in there like the zipper is open from open and closed from the outside so for basically this representation of a man to be put in this body like that has to have happened from an external force on it's just a great representation of like society has boxed in rio into being perceived and looking a certain way and being treated in a certain way and rio now is kind of breaking free from that to express himself freely like he is broken free from those shackles that other people have put him into i just love that visualization and I, i I believe Shintaro Nguyen was the the designer of that piece of art. Uh, I think Gal mentioned. so I thought that was a super great visual. That was just a super great encapsulation of the uh, of the theme and Rio's experience. So I really love I really love the artistic metaphors and moments in this book. Like uh, an earlier moment, I really loved uh, to just get across the sense of discomfort, and anxiety Rio has at being judged. It's like we have this page where we have uh, this panel of Rio's classmates staring at him. And then we have just one, the regular panel of the classmates staring at him. But then the panel underneath that has kind of been filled with screen tone and shadow, except for the eyes of the classmates that hold in on like how the stares give Ryo so much anxiety mm-hmm. and fear of being judged. So uh, I think Keiko Atter is just so good at just communicating such visceral emotions through his art like Ryo's crying face too, when he finally comes out to Jin is also just so powerful because it's so messy and so raw, mm-hmm. like not just the tears, but just how puffed up his nose is. I read it is and like the snot drooling out of it. Like it, it is just so raw in terms of emotion. So I, I just absolutely in love with the series in terms of like how thoughtfully constructed his boat in terms of art and storytelling and exp- exploration of its themes and metaphors. I mean like a Leo like are there any observations like anything that really struck out to you as well like
2: yeah you've <laughs> kind of already pointed out some of my favorite parts but yeah <laughs> I think just all the way through it's just really like amazing art and I think he does the pacing and the storytelling of it really well as well um, like it, it really feels like a well thought out story almost sort of like a novel in its um structure mm-hmm. and Yeah, I just, I love everything about it.
3: (laughs) Yeah.
0: I'm going to say right now, this is going to be the kind of thing where I think, because I think it's going to be four volumes long, if I'm not mistaken. Mm -hmm. Yeah. This is something we'll have to come back to when it ends, because I think we'll need to do, like, a follow-up on this eventually.
1: (laughs) Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, I'd love to. I am so excited to read more of the story, explore the full story. Like, I'm so excited for the following volumes. Especially with the point where it ends. It's such a exciting note for the potential of the future with their design being shown to a very popular queer YouTuber and, like, the potential of, you know, it getting out there and reaching a huge audience. But also, like, I like that note of, you know, Kashiwabara commenting on his cousin Tsubasa, like, they have a, a strange relationship with their mother they haven't seen in a year. And it's like, it seems like they're they're living their best life, but sometimes that life can come, you know, with some unfortunate tragedies or some, there's some hardships that, you know, they have to face. And, you know, there can be consequences to living freely as and, as yourself. And, you know, I'm sure... Uh, future the series might navigate some of that difficult territory and i'm really curious to see how that is explored i'm also really curious to see more of that character in general and learning more of their story because they're they seem super interesting mm-hmm. to basa so
0: yeah mm-hmm. just a stray thought i had that uh i i, I just appreciate the story as uh because i don't want to accidentally like you know generalize or anything but just from from what i've heard you know of you know people i know who have spent time in japan and you know from all the media i've consumed from japan you know that it really feels like that idea of you know uh the nail that sticks out gets hammered down is like a real thing that like a lot of people Mm -hmm. go through where you know japan uh, from what it seems is kind of all about sort of that collectivism, whereas like, you know, we here in North America are usually pretty all about like individualism just in general. And, you know, I just You could say the story in particular is kind of punk in a way, where it is it is Oh, absolutely.
1: Mm-hmm. Like it is rebellious. Like yeah. it is a definition of, again, like outcasts like coming together to make a statement. Like make a riot as it were. So yeah, like, absolutely. You could say they're I mean, running the riot. is also, like, so in- mm-hmm. entwined with punk. So, yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Like, it, it really does make great use of that aesthetic implications and of that iconography. And, yeah, I mean, I really love, I will say, their clothing design. Uh, no shame in my game. Like, mm. that's such a... Great message and also the logo that was on is so cool. Like I do wanna buy that shirt. Oh same, and, yeah. Like, that's a that's a great statement to make to the world and it it just is a great design in of itself. It's just the scene where Janice recruited all of his followers and friends to like wear the shirt <laughs> they're just walking around town is just such a good moment. Just see all of them just wearing these shirts around town.
0: It's pretty good. Kodancha, if you're listening, uh you should really Really team up with some kind Maybe team up with, like, Uniqlo or something. Make make, make these shirts. (laughs) I would buy one.
3: (laughs) Yeah.
1: (laughs) Make merch. I want merch. (laughs) I want to buy the clothing. I feel like that about so many fashion manga. But this one in particular, like, I want to (laughs) buy these graphic. These. Because these are so up my alley.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, in general, yeah, this... I think we'll probably talk about it in a bit. But I mean, you know... Uh, I remember seeing like talk about the series on Twitter, uh, people, uh, you know, tweeting about it and it getting gaining a lot of traction, which I, I do think is probably I'm going to guess is probably part of the reason it got picked up was because someone just tweeted about it. And then it got mm-hmm. a lot of traction and it got a lot of people interested and, uh, you know, I'm glad I'm glad it was picked up because like, man, this is this first volume alone is really good and I can't wait to read the rest of it. I really want to see where this goes.
1: Mm-hmm. I mean, I also definitely want to again, shout out TJ Ferentini because in there afterward, they did mention that they had Keito Gaku on their radar after mm-hmm. reading their initial one shot. And so that made them keep an eye out for, you know, their future work. And they were Godsmack reading boys on the riot and like, yeah, I mean, this is also such a recent series because it only came out and finished last year and now we're getting it here. So I really love the how quickly we got this series as well. Oh, yeah. And so that's mm. also really awesome to see and especially to see, again the really special treatment is given with new covers from Gaku Mm. and the covers are so beautiful and just so brilliant in their motif of like this split aesthetic Mm. of like seeing two different sides of the characters and their environment on the cover. Like it's just so clever. The colors are so beautiful and the concept is so Mm. reflective of the series Mm. thematically. Like I just love that so much. Yeah. I guess one other aspect I want to touch upon that you brought up earlier Holden is kind of like the, the institutional idea of, like, conformity in Japan with this idea of, like, you know, the nihilistic sets gets hammered down, because I think we do see a lot of good moments in the series that show the how that is reinforced, even though, obviously, characters may not always be conscious of it, or are, like, trying to rebel against that, because we see, like, it's just this general desire to not get involved, or to ridicule, or ostracize someone who's different because obviously like rio's classmates like in middle school like the girls were kind of perturbed by him hanging out with boys as just one of the guys and so they started to bully him to make him feel like that wasn't how it was meant to be which worked because it got his friends to you know abandon him basically but then we see you know outside of just rio's peers like in when we talk about the teachers, the teachers, you know, as kind of these adult authority figures, and we don't see too many adult authority figures in the series, but the teachers are notable in the fact that they are just so distant and uninterested in what's going on with the students. Like, unless they are like problem childs and like sticking out, like they, there's this very telling conversation about Brio where they're like, oh it's weird that he has done this but you know he it just seems like he's disinterested in getting involved in school life but he gets good grades so whatever like we're not really gonna care about him too much you know he's not he's not a problem Mm -hmm. that is something that we have to deal with so we're just not going to you know deal with or get involved in it at all so yeah
0: well, we'll let the students come to us (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's just this general sense of disinterest of like not getting involved or, you know, reaching out or helping people when they notice something is amiss and just like going, oh, I'm just going to keep to my own business and go about my own business and not really care about, you know, anything else. And we also see that later with Itzka and like that one of those same teachers you talking about, Rio, is Itzka's club advisor and he has such disinterest in... Iska's actual photography and what he wants to do and cares about it. and he's like you know I'm doing this as a favor to you like ultimately all I care about is giving you something to put on your transcript and then that will make me look good by saying like hey I've, I've given you something good to put on your transcript so <sighs> yeah. you know leave me out of it like I have there more important things that I invested in. in so I'm not really that interested in you or helping you. Mm.
0: No, yeah, that that really reminded me of, uh, of kind of Karma's backstory from Assassination Classroom, where he thought he had that yeah. one teacher who he could really trust, but then, you know, when he gets into even one altercation with another student that may just do better than him or whatever, it might make him look like a good teacher, then, you know, he, he basically throws him to the wolves and, like, is like, oh, well, you know what, you're not worth it anymore, like, you basically cost yeah. me my career, and it's just, man, I... I don't. I mean, again, I don't live in Japan. All I can say right. is, like, I mean, yeah. this
1: is something that happens here in America too. Yeah, for like, sure. These are generalizations. like this idea of like, oh, here in America we prize individuality. Like, that's not entirely true. I mean, Fair. there's a reason yeah. why queer communities are ostracized and why people have and still choose to remain closeted. Like, there are. Places in America where it is not safe and you're not really allowed to freely be yourself. And it's been a like, uh, yeah. centuries long battle for a lot of things that should be normalized to be normalized or at least get close there. It's not completely there. So, mm. you know, there are different forms. Uh, in which, like, individuality is celebrated in America and in Japan, and vice versa, where conformity is expected and imposed in America and, and Japan. But, like, I do think, again, the, ins- the way the series does present kind of this institutionalized conformity as an expectation is very, very interesting. And to go back to your point of pointing out the comparison to Sesame to Costume and Karma Story, like, that same consequence befalls Itzka here is that, like, the rich, more academically successful kid, like, gets away pretty scot-free with breaking Itzka's camera. And in the following altercation between Itzka and Oda, like, it's only Itzka who is suspended. Oda, presumably as his honor student, probably just got off scot-free and hasn't yeah. suffered no consequences for what he instigated, what he did. And it does show that unfairness in the system that those who conform and those who excel and live up to what society, you know, respects and wants, like, are given more of a free pass than those who fall outside of that idealization of what a person should be like and how a person should express themselves and be interested in.
2: Mm, I think that, um, in a lot of places, school is sort of like a little, like place where people are taught to conform to be ready mm-hmm. to go out into the world. Um like Yeah. Not just in Japan, like in the US, you have to say the Pledge of Allegiance and stuff like that. Yeah. Oh yeah. Uh but in Japan, um it's especially a problem, at least from what I've heard, um, to speak up about LGBTQ plus issues in school in Japan. So, um I can see why that's a big theme of Boys Run the Riot. But then also in Boys Run the Riot you have a couple of characters who see who like are more accepting of nonconformity like uh, chika and the other teacher hinata and
1: kashiwabara
2: yeah and i think it's really important that those characters are in it too because obviously um you know there's all sorts of people all sorts of opinions in different places in the world so it's really cool to see that in this series
1: yeah absolutely i mean it it definitely makes the world feel realistic Mm -hmm. like These are realistic characters dealing with realistic struggles, and then there's a realistic spectrum of people with different perspectives and viewpoints in how they treat Ryo and how they treat other characters who are considered outsiders or considered like people who are not quote-unquote ordinary or normal in this social setting. But yeah, I mean, I just think Boys on the Ride has a lot of very compelling uh messages about the struggle of self-expression versus the expectation of conformity and great, like, kind of metaphors and motifs to represent that in the form of fashion and clothing and graffiti. And again, it's just a super compelling story and super enriching and rewarding to see a story featuring a trans man lead like engaged in this story Mm -hmm. and dealing with some really real things like i again i really appreciate it and i mean are there any other like notes or thoughts about the story and like what we really appreciate and love about it that we want to address
0: not on my end anyway it's good you should read it that's all (laughs) i have to say (laughs) i agree (laughs)
1: I guess my final comment is that I just love this interaction. Like, after, you know, it's has acted so rude to Ryo and Jin, like, in the aftermath of his camera being broken, he's like saying, Why did you drag me into your mess? And why are you trying to stand out so much? You know, leave me out of your dates and so really offending them by implying like they, you know, are a couple and stuff like that. And so that gets Rio to leave in a huff and then the next day, you know, they confront you in the classroom and Rio's like, oh, do I know you? And then like as the <laughs> conversation continues. I just love the I love the diss that Rio gives. It's kind of like, shut up you skinny asshole, you're a waste of a pair of balls. <laughs> uh, that's just such a great line. <laughs> that
2: was fun to write. I
1: just love that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well that's one question I, I have for you. Like what are some of your favorite like lines to write in this translation in general? Like what were your some of your favorite moments to translate?
2: Um I do love translating like the little com- comedic bits like that. And I also really love um translating a lot of the conversations between Jin and Yo just because often they're very comedic or they're like very deep and there's some really impactful lines that I put a lot of time into trying to sound as impactful in the English as well so I enjoyed those parts the most I think
1: yeah excellent again i i really loved how this uh story you read and the voices of the characters just felt so clear potent oh yeah so, uh, again thank you for your work on the series <laughs> thank you actually that also brings me to something I want to talk about with uh, I Think Our Son Is Gay, because I was also curious about, again, like, favorite moments of translating that. But also, uh, because I th- I Think Our Son Is Gay has an interesting kind of recurring motif of, like, at the end of every chapter, like, Tomoko has a variation of saying, I think your son is probably gay, and then goes on to extrapolate from that, but, like, he's really cute and seared boot and or some variation of that and so i was just curious uh with that specifically like what in the original text was it the same every time of like what tomoko says and were there like just uh adaptations for the different chapters to just modify for the different contexts or like like just yeah how is that written and how did you approach translating that
2: Yeah, yeah so yeah at the end of every chapter tomoko sort of um in her head is like summarizing what she learned from the little like experience that happened in that chapter, and um, it it was pretty much like um it, it was often quite hard to translate those parts because um the tense is different in Japanese, so she's kind of talking in past tense, whereas mm. uh, in the English she's talking in pre- present tense, and those were the most challenging, but probably the most fun parts to translate because like they're very it's sort of like writing a moral of a story like very. Impactful and meaningful quotes that she says at the end of those. So yeah, I did my best to try and translate those because, um, a lot of like expressions and words for emotions and feelings in Japanese are quite different to English. So that was often quite challenging, but rewarding to translate those parts.
3: Mm -hmm.
1: Nice. Yeah. And they're all very moving, especially the one in the last chapter when she is saying, more than anything, you know, he's quite simply a precious member of our family. Mm. Like, yeah, they're always very hard work, hard-working. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I guess if it, if it isn't already obvious from our conversation, like, if you're at all interested in either of these books, you really should pick them up.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. And, yeah, I mean, we have some more questions to go over off of twitter we got some good folks who you know have uh, in some questions so i guess we'll uh, just address them here and i wanted to start with a question from edwin quintanilla who asks you know when we first hear about these series and uh, what is something we hope u.s western readers take away from both of them so yeah i mean that's just a question i want to put out there is like what do we hope that, um, you know, readers will take out of these series and like specifically like Boys on the Riot? And, you know, what do we hope, you know, young trans men who might be in a similar situation to Ryo, like take out of the series? You know, what message do you hope that, you know, they can take away from it?
2: Mm, I think I'd like to echo what Keita Gaku himself said about that he hoped um, people get out of the series is i think there's actually a question that i asked him <laughs> and that it was put in the interview basically <laughs> uh he just said you know he wants um young trans boys and trans men to find something that they're passionate about to you know help work through these feelings and um i hope that people like or even feel passionate about this series because yeah i think it's just such great pres- like representation and very cathartic to read and um, made, made me feel a bit less alone reading it, and I hope people get that benefit as well from reading it, and for everyone else to enjoy it as well, not just gay and trans boys.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely a Google Sandmills.
0: No, for sure. Yeah, I, I think hopefully Boys Run the Riot will be a good... it'll be a good book you know maybe for other trans people to uh maybe it'll give them the courage to like express themselves you know mm. that would be great mm. and I, I i don't know if i said it earlier but um uh, i think our son is gay you know it, it is one of those things where like unfortunately in real life you know not not everyone's family is going to be accepting which is unfortunate and just just kind of a part of the real world um so i i hope for that series in particular maybe that book can be like a sort of a form of a, like escapism almost like mm-hmm. oh man like it, it would be nice if I had like a nice family like like him or whatever I don't know that that, that sounds really sad but like you know I, I hope it but it can be comforting, yeah, it can exactly. be comforting mm-hmm. to have yeah.
1: like this window into like this supportive happy family Mac, especially if you if you don't have that if you didn't have like a person in that in your life but also yeah I think that a great takeaway from both series is just don't be afraid to really be yourself to express yourself and be open about who you are and trust people with the, the knowledge of who you are like i think again a great moment in boys on the right is when ryo does finally kind of went his feelings to Jin and went just out himself to Jin, and Jin is like oh well thank you for telling me like i I didn't know that, and I, but I want to understand you because, you know, we're friends. And, you know, obviously it's a very scary thing to do that. And you can only really do that when you're comfortable and when you really feel like you can trust someone. But, you know, I think what's great about these series is that it shows that, you know, you can find allies, friends, people in your life who will love and support you unabashedly for who you are. Mm -hmm. And I think that's just something that everyone needs to have in their lives, but especially, you know, young queer kids. And I think that's a great message that these books are, are sending, that you can find that, that there is community, that there is support out there for you.
2: Yeah. I think both series sort of, they like speak into existence, the possibilities of allyship and of coming out and of having supportive family and things like that. And like, just people, both LGBTQ+ plus people and people who might have LGBTQ+ plus people in their lives, can read these and see the possibilities of what could be. I think that's really important too. Oh yeah, absolutely.
1: And our last question comes from Casual at Magical Girl, who asked us you know, as a nice wrap-up question: like, what is your favorite chapter, translated or untranslated? of each so far, Leo. A boy's from the riot, and I think our son is gay.
2: So I don't don't think I'm allowed to spoil the parts that haven't come (laughs) out yet. But yeah, I had a think. And I think in, I think our son is gay, I think I love the last chapter the most just because it's such a beautiful climax and summary of how Tomoko came to accept and understand Hiroki. And yeah, teared up a lot when I was translating that. And then um, in Boys from the Riot, I think I-, I like all of it, but I think it has such a strong start with chapter one. I think I think it's the longest chapter. Mm-hmm. And there's just so so many parts of it that are so raw and emotional and yeah, I just really liked translating those parts and just mm-hmm. some really relatable trans feelings in that <laughs> chapter. So I think I like that one the most.
1: Absolutely. These books are really strong start to finish. Mm. So, again, we can't recommend them enough. Like, they are really good stories and very moving. And, yeah, again, I want to thank you, Leo, for coming on to uh, talk about them with us and for helping share these stories with uh, an audience over here, an English reading audience, like Mm -hmm. through your translation efforts. Like, thank you so much.
0: Thank you so much. That means a lot. Hopefully, in the future, we can, uh, like I said, have you on to maybe uh, maybe talk about the rest of Boys Run the Riot, uh, in particular. Yeah, yeah, I'd love to.
1: And Pandora Hearts. <laughs> yeah.
0: Like, that'd be a fun one. <laughs> yeah, we'll have, to, we'll have to put that on our list. That'd be awesome. Mm-hmm.
1: But until the next time we can talk again, I mean, do you want to just mention where people can find you and find your work and check you out on social media?
2: Yeah, so um, I've got my Twitter, which is at Leo Translations, I believe. And then I've got a WordPress blog where I post occasionally just my thoughts on translation and on Japanese literature and things like that, um, which is linked on my Twitter, I think. I can't remember the URL anymore. But we'll be sure to link it in the show notes. Cool. Thank you.
3: <laughs> mm-hmm. All right,
1: And I think that draws our conversation to a close, but this riot ain't quite over yet because now we got to go into our community shout outs before we wrap up the show. Colton, let's get ready to riot. Let's riot. <laughs> Thanks again to Leo for coming on the show. It was a pleasure to talk to him about his translation career and his work on two very wonderful series, and we can't wait to have him on again to talk about the entirety of Boys from the Riot in the future. Until then, we've got some more great thoughts on Boys from the Riot and trans representation in manga and anime I want to shout out in this episode of Community Shoutout Segment. First off, I definitely want to bring Leo's blog up again, where he's written posts discussing his experiences as a translator and analyzing different media from a trans-mask perspective. Particularly the book *Breasts and Eggs by Kawakami miyako and the game Tell Me Why. And, as mentioned in our conversation, his post on translating gender from Japanese to English, adapted from his college thesis, is a really excellent dissection of the different ways Japanese can apply gender that aren't done in English, and the nuances within that, and contrasting the nature of English and Japanese languages, and why that can lead to challenges in understanding and defining gender in different contexts and the difficulties of interpreting intent to translate accurately. Leo writes really thoughtful and interesting analysis in all his pieces, and they're all really elucidating reads. Next, I'd like to cover another group covering a broad swat of queer manga and media by spotlighting Manga Machination's Pride Month episodes. The manga Mac crew did five episodes last month, covering a variety of queer manga. From a conversation with translator Jocelyn Allen on Nagai Kappes' memoir, My Alcoholic Escape from Reality, to a turn discussion of the preeminent queer manga, Our Dreams at Dusk, to coverage of the Yuri Tunnels I Love You So Much I Hate You, and Even do We're Adults, and BL like Fight Island and Manly Appetites. They even covered Boys from the Ride and I Think Our Son Is Gay on the same episode, just like we did. Though unfortunately, they had much less enthusiastic impressions of the series. A lot of which I don't really agree with, but, you know, the Manga crew at least always explained their perspective as well, so it was still interesting to listen to. And I definitely think their My Alcoholic Escape and Our Dreams at Dusk episodes were really great and thoughtful discussions of those works, and I would definitely recommend checking those episodes out in particular. But for more Boys Run the Ride specific coverage, I want to recommend Credential USA's video spotlighting a series and interviewing editor TJ Ferentini about how they discovered the series and what blew them away about it, and how they collaborated with Gaku on the US edition's new covers and worked hard to make sure everything translated seamlessly in English. I really admire the love and effort poured into the series by TJ Leo and the rest of Credential. Comics USA team, and this video is a great encapsulation of all their hard work and enthusiasm for the series. On the subject of videos, I want to recommend Wim Deer's piece analyzing the use of fashion in Boys on the Ride and its symbolic ties to counterculture and rebellion against conformity. These were points we brought up in this podcast, but I think Wim Deer has really described it very well, especially when contrasting with Utterman with similar themes. As for written posts, why Kaiser's piece on the series for Band Byte? Does a great job of describing why Boys on the Right is so special in terms of trans reputation manga, and why even though the premise follows some familiar coming to his story beats, it's still a really well told story about how hard it is to be yourself, especially for queer youth, who face even more obstacles to that. It's a very heartfelt and impassioned piece that really well articulates what makes the story so powerful even in the simplicity of its premise. I also wrote a great perspective for the fraught, modern, classic Samurai Flamenco on NFM recently, describing what they love about its craziness and queer relationship between the male leads, but also discussing the unfortunate trappings of its gender violence that often bordered on misogynistic, and how the creators, at least the marketing of the series, didn't really see the central relationship as queer, and that... Goes into a conversation about how the queer community tends to be treated for reading queer subjects into a work, but why, in this case, in the case of this show, it was just too much actual evidence for the relation not to simply be the text, and ultimately lamenting just, you know, the tiredness of being a queer fan who has long had to beg for scraps in terms of representation in media and having external material and external sources deny what is so clearly present in the text, but, you know, ultimately, why this show, as imperfect as it is, even with all the baggage, is still something that can be treasured as a rare queer genre of work, and there's no need to apologize for still finding joy in flawed queer stories that were really formative to you. And it was just a really good tribute and analysis of a messy show, and I'll echo Rye's sentiments, please, watch Sam Juan it is quite the ride. But for more retrospectives on messy shows, I'll also shout out Jacob Chapman's recent season of retrospectives for the late seasons of Attack on Titan and The Never Neverland. Jacob always does a good job about going into what works and what doesn't in how Titan explores its themes and metaphors with trickly and often uncomfortable with and well really well articulating also the false the promise never land second season. How the world and the ideas it was trying to explore were just too big for a series of its length to ever explore well, to say nothing of how the series actually executed those themes in the time they had. So Jacob always has really thoughtful analysis on series with wave themes, and he does an especially good job of pinpointing what and why they don't work, and these latest videos are no exception and really excellent watches. But turning the subject back to trans manga, but we'll continuing on the subject of messy series, I want to recommend Matt Juan gontens piece on Wandering Sun, which he watched for the first time this year and reflected on the ways the series... ...reflected and didn't reflect his own experiences as a jittery person... ...describing what the series did well... ...in being empathetic and exploring transitioning... ...and some very real experiences... ...but also pointing out the way the series falls short... ...in terms of Takako Shimura's lack of lived experiences... ...how that informed her perspective... ...and how her writing, you know... ...from that starting place... ...was just not sufficient enough to carry through an entire series and how her own fixations as an author ultimately undermines the show's treatment of its themes and its characters, particularly in how it overemphasizes Shuichi's arc to the detriment of other trans characters in the story, especially Yoshino, the manga's only trans-masked male character, who has a completely <laughs> aborted arc, and by the end of the manga has basically not gone through a transitioning, and it's really frustrating because of how few trans male characters there are in manga and for Warrington to be kind of like the golden child of trans manga, it's kind of frustrating that ultimately it does not actually have trans manuscript presentation in it. But the piece also goes in depth into how well a piece of media made by cis people can ever truly accurately understand and explore trans characters and, you know, having various misgivings about both the original manga and the animes of adaptation, ultimately though, Matt finds a lot of interesting World World stuff in the series, and ultimately ends the piece by saying, Yeah, it's still worth checking out. And as someone who only finally got through Wandering Sun this year, I echo a lot of Matt's sentiments, especially about hoping Wandering Sun won't always have to bear the burden of being the trans anime manga series, and can just be left remembered as a flawed but still valuable quaint Relic of its time. And finally, my last two shoutouts will be for folks who've listed off some great examples of recommendations for trans series to check out. Bring the T wrote a great post profiling different anime series or trans leads and series with trans characters, commenting on how the depiction of trans characters in anime manga series has changed and, in most cases, improved over time. It's a great overview of trans representation in anime and a great article to read for recommendations series to watch and ones to avoid for some of their baggage. And lastly, I want to recommend Robin at Lynch's Tread. They made a while back for Trans back in March. That listed off a variety of great different manga with trans leads. And also, since I forgot it before, but it's the first title they mentioned, yes, I forgot about Claudine earlier in this podcast when talking about manga available in English with trans leads. So yes, I'm extreme manga localized in English that have trans leads. But, you know, straight ain't enough. We deserve and need more, and Robin's tread lists a ton of great titles to check out, and hopefully some that we'll see licensed someday. And with more and more queer stories being written by queer authors, writing the representation they want to see, more and more queer manga being licensed, I am optimistic and hopeful that we'll see more great manga like Boys are in the Riot that push the bar in terms of representation very soon, and very often. And that hopefulness and optimism is a note I want to leave off on as we wrap up these shoutouts and head into the wrap-up of our show. But with those shoutouts shouted out, I think it is time to finally quell this riot just for today and head into our final shout outs of where you can find us until the next time we can congregate together again.
0: Yeah, no, for sure. And I guess, um, Lum, do you want to go ahead and, uh, start yours first? Like always.
1: You can find me at Lum Riyasha on Twitter. as Lum Riyasha, a variety of places like Animation revelation and annulus, where it is a Lum Ronyasha. That's you can find me. You can also read my reviews on all-comic.com we got a lot of books coming, a lot of reviews going out, including, I've written reviews of I Think Arizona's Gay and Boys on the Rest, so you can check those on there. And we've got lots more reviews on the way, so look forward to that. In addition, you can also find on on allihonnic.com, the other podcasts they do, at Matters, the show where we talk about anime movies, and lum Squad, the Eurus yachta Focus podcast, where me and my good friend Andrew A.C. Ushimura goes through the wonderful Mikey World of Eurus Yachta manga, anime, all everything related to the franchise that we've been
3: going through with this long releases
1: recently, but now we're also dipping our toes into the anime movies since Launch Retro. We've done an episode on Only You, and we're definitely planning a multi-part episode on Beautiful Dreamers, so look forward to some great episodes of Lone Sky coming your way very, very soon, darlings, and finally you can... Check out the art I make if you enjoy the art I make for this show and all the podcasts I do, as well as the art and animation illustrations I make in general. You can find all of that stuff on my Instagram, at SidArtworks.
0: All right. But as for me, I'm Colton. You can find me on Twitter, at SniperKing323. I also host a few other podcasts that you can find links to over at my personal blog at coltoncorner.wordpress.com. I have a page dedicated with links to whatever podcast I've done or or am doing at this moment, including stuff like One Podcast Prevails, which is a show dedicated to Detective Conan slash Case Closed, uh, the manga specifically as released by Viz Media that I talk about with my friend, Doctor, from the Ask Backwards Anime podcast, uh, as well as other shows from that network in particular, like Justin in Tama podcast and the main, like, SSA podcast and all, all kinds of stuff that, like, I'm always trying to, like, update with, like, different guest spots and stuff. I think on the previous episode of the podcast, I mentioned I was on an episode of Deal with the Devils and Shield 21 podcast. If you haven't listened to that, go listen to it. I'm sure there's a link to that in my uh, personal blog as well. I mean, once again, if you're interested in any of the other podcasts I do besides this one, please go check them out again at coltoncorner.wordpress.com. But as for everything else involving, you know, Manga Mavericks and the podcast, you can find every episode of the podcast over at all-comic.com. That's where you can find every episode first, unless you are a patron of ours at patreon.com slash manga mavericks where at the $2 tier in particular, you will get access to select episodes of the podcast whenever we have them edited. Specifically, if we happen to have an episode of the podcast edited before it's supposed to go up on our main feed, uh, we will upload those on our Patreon first for our patrons to listen to before anyone else. There are some times where, like, we'll have some podcasts edited and done so early that, like, you know, we'll put those up on our Patreon a few weeks, sometimes like even months in advance. Like sometimes we we really try to do our best to like get as many podcasts as possible done before they're supposed to go up. We try to work ahead as much as possible sometimes. So, you know, sometimes we have a lot of stuff that goes on our, up on our Patreon first. So, you know, if you want a chance to listen to some of our shows first before anyone else, even before everyone on allcomic.com, that's at patreon.com slash manga mavericks. Or if you want some newer content, You could sign up for a $5 tier in particular, where at the end of every month, you will get at least one new bonus podcast. Right now, uh, you can listen to our discussion on the live-action Speed Racer movie, directed by the Wachowski siblings, all the way back from 2008, as sort of a companion to our original Speed Racer manga episode that we did with our friend Joey Weiser, who is also on this podcast with us as well, as well as our good friend Sam Leach from the One Piece podcast. Both of them huge fans of this movie. Now now, now am I. I am also a fan of this movie now. Not to give too much away, (laughs) but (laughs) it was a good discussion. I love talking about it. If you've listened to our Speed Racer episode and thought, oh man, I wonder what their thoughts are on the movie. Well, you can listen to that on our Patreon. And I guess at the time we're releasing this episode, hopefully, like, if it's not out when this episode is out, it should be out soon. Uh, But we are going to be uploading a discussion about My Alcoholic Escape from Reality, uh, the newest book from Nagata Kabi that we talk about with our good friend Eric Friedman from Okazu Yuri. And yeah, it uh, it was a lot of fun discussing Nagata Kabi's works, you know, despite how, you know, sometimes heavy and depressing they can be due to the nature of her works. But it's still always, like, interesting to talk about her works and, like, how we feel about them and just talk about how much we love them in general so if you've listened recently to our uh, my solo exchange diary podcast which was originally a, a bonus podcast on our patreon then you want to sign up for our patreon at patreon.com slash manga mavericks and listen to that when it's out just in general uh, we really want to thank anyone for like supporting us on patreon it really kind of helps us keep going it really it makes some of these podcasts possible and It keeps the lights on in general, and, you know, if you can support us, we would really appreciate it. It's really the best way to support us in everything we do here. Once again, patreon.com slash manga mavericks. But as for everything else, you can find us on, uh, you can find us on facebook.com slash all.comic or on twitter.com slash allcomic underscore. But if you want to follow manga mavericks specifically, you want to follow us on twitter at manga underscore mavericks or on Tumblr at mangamavericks.tumblr.com for all the latest updates on the podcast. Uh, subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash mavericks, where we upload different excerpts of the podcast as well as some exclusive content every once in a while. Again, that's at youtube.com slash mavericks. Please subscribe to us. Email us anything at mangamavericks at gmail.com. Do you have any thoughts on Boys Run the Riot and I Think Our Son is Gay? Do you have any uh, any recommendations for other like LGBTQ plus queer manga that you want us to cover on the show or that you're reading in general? Tell us like what you're reading or whatever and tell us what you think about the podcast emails about either of those things or more. You know, we love getting emails and we will read them on the show if you send them to us again, that's at manga mavericks at gmail.com. But the most important thing, guys, is that you subscribe, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, or basically wherever you listen to podcasts, you know, we're on so many different platforms at this point. But especially on Apple Podcasts, if you leave us a rating and a review, it really helps the visibility of our show on that platform in particular. And just in general, we love getting feedback from you guys, you know, Uh, whatever feedback you leave us, you know, positive or negative, we really want to like take that seriously and use that to our ability to like, make the show as good as possible. You know, We, we take your feedback very seriously. And we appreciate it. But yeah, that's going to be about it for the podcast. This has been episode 164 of the Manga Mavericks podcast on allcomic.com. And we will see you guys next time for episode 165. Bye, guys.
1: Sayonara! Sayonara!